0: Listening to Talk Radio, the world for people who think.
1: We are doomed to extinction because of agriculture. We have raped and pillaged this planet. There is a a, a disinformation program, literally for everyone, no matter who you are and what what your interests are. Uh, what your beliefs are, which which way you're focusing, there is a website set up just for you to take you in and to vector your thinking and your attention into, into the way that they want you to think. Categories for things happening in the sky and the cosmos. If you read the scientific reports that come through and put the pieces together, you can see something big is happening.
0: We are an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously, as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too, and that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. The war in Iraq was one of the most brutal events in modern history. Sold to the people on the basis of lies about non-existent WMDs and Saddam Hussein's non-existent ties to non-existent Al-Qaeda, the above quote from a Bush administration official encapsulates the pathological delusion of grandeur that is U.S. government foreign policy. On this week's show, we'll be marking the 10th anniversary of shock and awe by comparing American fantasy with reality examining the disastrous choices American policymakers have taken as the economy implodes. 9-11 gave the warmongers their new Pearl Harbor. Couched in lofty rhetoric about spreading democracy and liberating the world from tyrannical dictators, America's glorious self-image stands in stark contrast to the brutal reality of ten years of bloody mayhem that has left Iraq and its people ripped apart. Hubris and Pathology large, It's a tale as old as time, from Athens and Rome to the British Empire and today's U.S.-managed global pathocracy. To paraphrase George Orwell, in times of monumental deceit, rhetoric is valued over truth. And the reality today's philosopher kings have created is about to get a very rude awakening. Hi and welcome to Sat Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn, and I'm Neil Bradley, and it's just the two of us this week, Uh, so it'll be an intimate soiree, uh, as we've just noted. The topic this week is the Iraq War, because just a few days ago uh, was the 10th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, so we're going to be discussing that entire history and a few other things or perhaps many other things associated with it, tangentially. But before we do that, or maybe to kick us off on that topic, we have a word from one of our sponsors.
2: My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. More than 35 countries are giving crucial support, from the use of naval and air bases, to help with intelligence and logistics, to the deployment of combat units. Every nation in this coalition has chosen to bear the duty and share the honor of serving in our common defense. To all the men and women of the United States Armed Forces now in the Middle East, the peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. That trust is well placed. The enemies you confront will come to know your skill and bravery. The people you liberate will witness the honorable and decent spirit of the American military. In this conflict, America faces an enemy who has no regard for conventions of war or rules of morality. Saddam Hussein has placed Iraqi troops and equipment in civilian areas, attempting to use innocent men, women, and children as shields for his own military, a final atrocity against his people. I want Americans and all the world to know that coalition forces will make every effort to spare innocent civilians from harm. A campaign on the harsh terrain of a nation as large as California could be longer and more difficult than some predict. And helping Iraqis achieve a united, stable, and free country will require our sustained commitment. We come to Iraq with respect for its citizens, for their great civilization, and for the religious faiths they practice. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control of that country to its own people. I know that the families of our military are praying that all those who serve will return safely and soon. Millions of Americans are praying with you for the safety of your loved ones and for the protection of the innocent. For your sacrifice, you have the gratitude and respect of the American people. And you can know that our forces will be coming home as soon as their work is done. Our nation enters this conflict reluctantly, yet our purpose is sure. The people of the United States and our friends and allies will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder. We will meet that threat now with our Army, Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard, and Marines so that we do not have to meet it later with armies of firefighters and police and doctors on the streets of our cities. Now that conflict has come, the only way to limit its duration is to apply decisive force. And I assure you, this will not be a campaign of half measures, and we will accept no outcome but victory. My fellow citizens, the dangers to our country and the world will be overcome. We will pass through this time of peril and carry on the work of peace. We will defend our freedom. We will bring freedom to others. And we will prevail. May God bless our country
3: and all who defend her.
4: Coming
0: back into a live show. We are reconnecting. So I suppose that means that we may well be back on on air. Uh, sorry about that folks. We were having some serious problems with Skype here, which is our uh connection uh to Block Talk Radio. And um it just wasn't it was continually crapping out on us Um yep and we, so dial, we a, in, dial in dial in it wouldn't connect. connect so we had to restart and i think okay so people are saying yay back on so we must be back on all right, all right. good job <laughs> reboot reboot always works Okay, uh, thanks for your patience. 80% of the time. Anyway, we will let's see if we can go back to what we were doing there. And I know some people didn't like what we were playing there, but we're going to play it again anyway because he's our sponsor. sponsor. He's our sponsor. I'm not, yeah, in a, in a strange sort of way, he's our sponsor. He has certainly uh, given us lots of motivation to, um, to write and say things over the past 10 years. So uh, we're just going to go back to that audio clip of the great George W. Bush on uh, the launching of Operation Iraqi Freedom. My fellow citizens, at
2: this hour American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. More than 35 countries are giving crucial support, from the use of naval and air bases, to help with intelligence and logistics, to the deployment of combat units. Every nation in this coalition has chosen to bear the duty and share the honor of serving in our common defense to all the men and women of the United States Armed Forces now in the Middle East, the peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. That trust is well placed. The enemies you confront will come to know your skill and bravery. The people you liberate will witness the honorable and decent spirit of the American military. In this conflict, America faces an enemy who has no regard for conventions of war or rules of morality. Saddam Hussein has placed Iraqi troops and equipment in civilian areas, attempting to use innocent men, women, and children as shields for his own military, a final atrocity against his people. I want Americans and all the world to know that coalition forces will make every effort to spare innocent civilians from harm. A campaign on the harsh terrain of a nation as large as California could be longer and more difficult than some predict. And helping Iraqis achieve a united, stable and free country will require our sustained commitment. We come to Iraq with respect for its citizens, for their great civilization, and for the religious faiths they practice. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control of that country to its own people. I know that the families of our military are praying that all those who serve will return safely and soon. Millions of Americans are praying with you for the safety of your loved ones and for the protection of the innocent. For your sacrifice, you have the gratitude and respect of the American people. And you can know that our forces will be coming home as soon as their work is done. Our nation enters this conflict reluctantly, yet our purpose is sure. The people of the United States and our friends and allies will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder. We will meet that threat now with our Army, Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard, and Marines, so that we do not have to meet it later with armies of firefighters, and police, and doctors on the streets of our cities. Now that conflict has come, the only way to limit its duration is to apply decisive force. And I assure you, this will not be a campaign of half measures, and we will
0: Yada, 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 yada. Blah, I, blah, blah. I have... Jesus, I'm sorry, there was an extra few... I had 30 seconds of, of stuff there, but I just couldn't take it anymore because I was going to lose my lunch. Um that was by far the biggest piece of propaganda despicable, hideous, horrible propaganda, lies and emotional manipulation. It really should go down in history. Someone should put that in a plaque, alongside, you know, various speeches by Hitler and Genghis Khan and Kelly. <laughs> And various people. And Tony Blair. And Tony Blair, yeah, he should be another. There's plenty from the 20th century. Um, so there you had Bush telling the American people and the world, I suppose, that uh, 10 years ago um, they were going to invade Iraq. The U.S. military was invading Iraq um, to free the world from grave danger. What grave danger? There was none. They were tr- going to um, stop Saddam's Ability to wage war. He had no intention of waging war. 35 countries, supposedly, were engaged in this noble cause. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not surprised coming from Bush, but I'm sure his math isn't up to to scratch, isn't up to third grade level probably. But 35 countries is a bit of an exaggeration. It was really the U.S., the United Kingdom, and Australia. Yeah, there were a few other countries. Australia, very few troops. Mainly the U.S., then the the U.K., some Australians. There was a few from El Salvador, half a dozen from South Korea. Italy had a few. These are all client American regimes, anyway, or yeah. they were at the time. Georgia, Ukraine, but several of these countries actually were there for only about six months or a year as well. So this was clearly a U.S and to a lesser extent, UK-inspired invasion, despite the fact that he claims 35 countries, coalition of the willing, my backside. It was being pursued to give hope to an oppressed people. We were expected to just accept that, that somehow the Iraqis were an oppressed people and were desperately in need of liberating. And they had no ambition. The Americans had no ambition in going to war. Iraq. Totally not going to war. No. Going to war. It should not be going to war. See this idea of going to war, the Iraq war. There was no Iraq war. I mean, it pisses me off something serious when I hear that see that over and over again and it's going down history. It's written in history books now as an Iraq war. It was not a war. It was an invasion by a massively massively superior force of another nation that had been decimated in terms of its uh, ability to respond, it's, its military and even its civilian population, because of 10 years of sanctions previously yeah. that killed half a million children and about probably another million people. So, this was not a war. A, war, a war is when you have two armies. Yeah, exactly. exactly. This was the invasion of a sovereign country and an attack on the people of the country who had been beaten bloody already into a position of submission. And the Iraq invasion and occupation and was just basically going into the kill. The complete uh, appropriation of the country, which is what has happened. Um, yeah, and the whole bullshit about, you know, we're taking this action now because we don't want... We want to fight now with our bombs and our guns or whatever over there because we don't want to have to fight with firefighters on the streets of our own cities. I mean, that's yeah. just so much... Yeah, this Nonsense. is, this is the, the rhetorical line we hear throughout the war on terror. We're
5: fighting them over there, so we don't have to fight them here. Yeah. Uh, François Hollande recently said exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's a catchphrase. We've gone to I Mali, so we can fight them there, and we don't have to fight them here. Yeah. In it's, the middle of the Sahara.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, it's the idea of kind of like proving a negative in a, in a certain sense, you know. I mean, no one can... Supposedly contest that because what these presidents and psychopaths and psychopathic presidents and prime ministers and stuff are saying is that they know something we don't, which is that these evildoers are going to do evil on us at some point in the future. So we are taking action now to stop that from happening and protect all of you. And there's no proof needed in in such a in such a statement. You don't need to back it up because it's national security and blah blah blah. No one questions. People just say, "Oh well, if you're doing it for my my safety, go ahead," you know. So yeah, that's another thing that pisses me off, hearing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Plenty of get them over there. so We don't have to get them here.
5: Plenty of rhetoric in there to manipulate and play on the fears. Especially, I mean, this came after you nine know, eleven. That wasn't hard to do. But they still felt they had to try and prevent, uh, prevent, uh, present a Casas Belli ad, uh, an actual justification for doing it. And that was, of course, WNDs. Mm-hmm. And my God, they tried.
0: They tried hard, but <laughs> there was nothing. Well, exactly. And I mean, everybody knows this, and no one seems to care because if they did really care, the world would be up in arms. Pretty much, I, I think it's safe to say that a good... Uh, proportion, as in a majority, a decent majority of at least people in the Western world, in Western Europe and Europe and probably around the world and other countries as well, know that the Americans and the Brits deliberately lied to the world and made shit up about WMDs to justify their invasion, i.e. they had no good reason to invade. It was a war of aggression. And these same people who were behind this are still in positions of power. Still in positions of influence, still giving talks if they're not directly in, in, in office. And people going you know, people, people don't care that, that this has happened. And I mean this is just we're just talking about here about an insult to your intelligence. We're not even talking about the actual results of this war of aggression and what it did to your fellow human beings. <clears throat> I mean, talking about the the WMDs, they had three initial three initially they had three narratives. Uh, they went from one to the next to the next. Yeah. They started off with Saddam did 9-11 or at least he was
6: harboring
0: the terrorists or he was hanging out with Al-Qaeda, hanging out with Osama and you know they were buddies some kind of childish nonsensical BS to try and tie the invasion of Iraq and Saddam Hussein to the trauma of 9-11 so everybody would get behind it. They were just looking for anything that was emotionally jarring or that would grab people's by, by the emotions and get them to say, OK, just do it, just do it, oh my God, you know, 9-11, no. So it was ni- Saddam 9-11, and that was very quickly dismissed and ridiculed by people, by scholars, by many people who know that there was no way that Saddam would ever have been hanging out. Yeah, they, they dropped that one like a hot
5: potato because Saddam Hussein, of course,
0: was the leader of the most secular
5: country Yes, in a region that was supposedly full of islamo fascist last muslim terrorists. Yes, So he would have been the very opposite end of that scale.
0: Yes, exactly. He was certainly not, he was fighting against, in fact, uh, Islamofascist type people or fundamentalist Religious, Islamic yeah, extremists Extremists for many years, and it was well known. So they dropped that quickly. Then they moved on to, as we just said, WMDs uh, with lots of fabrication, lots of uh, going and back and forth to the UN to try and convince the entire world that with Colin Powell showing silly pictures of things that he had made up or someone had given him who had made them up, pictures of mobile weapons, labs, etcetera. Et cetera. Curveball, uh, who was basically
5: just supposedly a, an Iraqi informer. He
0: was an informer for some Western intelligence agency and he, um, he had admitted now that German. Yes, for the Germans. And but it was all made up because apparently his source was an Iraqi taxi driver. That was to was drunk. Bang the wheel. No, there was something about an Iraqi taxi driver that they got, that's ultimately where the information come from came from. Yeah, there was there was
5: another story that this guy had worked in a agricultural seed processing factory somewhere in the middle of Iraq, and he fabricated this story. And be, we I say he fabricated because he later admitted that it was fabricated. Yeah. And the Germans who were listening to all this intelligence and passing it on to the CIA presumably uh, tried not tried, actually tried to explain to the Americans,
0: listen, uh, this
5: guy's a bullshit
0: artist, don't believe anything you saying. But, but the CIA were aware of that as well, but it was the officials in the Bush government who were right. saying, listen, that's not good enough, we want information, we want uh, testimony from someone that fits in with our idea to invade Iraq. They were just going back and forth to the CIA saying, listen, find it, find something, find anything. And they couldn't. And eventually, this was the best they came up with, which was a pure out-and-out lie. And they had Tony Blair talking about the 45-minute uh, attack time frame from, or at least that they could mobilize, Saddam could mobilize his uh, weapons, long-range, yes, ICBMs or whatever, long-range missiles with chemical warheads that could strike the UK within 45, 45 minutes. minutes, or at least could yeah, be, that was it. At least could be uh, mobilized within 45 minutes. And maybe that came from an Iraqi taxi driver. Maybe that's right, But there was definitely an Iraqi taxi driver who supplied <laughs> some of the core information from this, and they knew it. And Tony Blair, psychopath that he is, evil, disgusting. I can't think of any more words <laughs> right now that that are, are that are repeatable. He he stood up in front of the House of Commons and 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 vociferously declared that Saddam did have weapons of mass destruction, and that. We needed to go to war. Everybody needed to go to war. And it was all based on lies. And the man, Tony Blair, that we're talking of, also had David Kelly killed later that year in 2003, in July 2003, had him assassinated. This was David, Dr. David Kelly, who was a, a weapons inspector who had been in Iraq a long time and knew that the claims of Iraqi weapon of mass, weapons of mass destruction that Blair had been touting yeah, over and over again. He knew it was false. He was going... To testify that it was false, he was going to reveal the information that was ironclad. That him being someone who was, who was a career scientist and a weapons inspector knew and had been in Iraq for, on many occasions knew that it was lies. He was assassinated quite clearly, yeah, and I think- by the Blair government, Alexander Campbell, uh, whoever they got to do it, basically some hitman. People must know that that was such a sickening side Everybody knows it thing. in the UK. Every single person in the UK knows well, okay, I'm exaggerating, but seriously there are a lot of people who because the story is so ridiculous. It was so brazen.
5: I mean the guy was I'd already been outed as the informant of this journalist for the BBC, Andrew Gilligan. Yep. His name was out there at this point it's public.
0: You don't just go and kill someone
5: well, they do. But they and do. they did. Well, they did it in such a way to try and make it look like a suicide. Yeah, because
0: right. he was so, so so under such stress because he was going to have to reveal this deep, dark secret that Tony Blair is a lying piece of... Uh, Shite? No, I can't say that. Not on air. So, um, yeah, that's what we're talking about here. The, the, sorry, that was just all inspired by George Bush's <laughs> address to the nation. The, the
5: thing with the W...
0: And before you go on, the
5: WMD angle... The lies go even further back because immediately after the Gulf War, 1991, Mm -hmm. not immediately, I think it was a couple of years after, they they launched one of those infamous whitewash public inquiries in the UK. It was called the Scott Inquiry. Mm -hmm. And it was because of reports that had come out, which everyone already knew beforehand anyway, that the weapons Saddam had been using in the first Cold War, mm-hmm. were, were sold to them by the Brits yeah. and the Americans mm-hmm. right up until Operation Desert Storm was launched. Mm-hmm. And the, the Scott Inquiry pretty much nailed that down, the timeline, what exactly was sold. Now. They they couched it in well oh we weren't so we didn't know he was going to use them like that mm-hmm. we didn't know he would use them against his own people yeah we gave him to the soldiers just you know. we just gave him and they called it farming equipment yeah. it was for agricultural purposes right, oh well yeah. we didn't yeah. know he
0: was going to do that with it yeah it was well known that it's around like some some uh, mustard gas in his tea you know so so if there was anything to any
5: weapons of mass destruction which there wasn't
0: because all through the
5: nineties. UN inspectors had gone and overseen their, their destruction, if anything was found, mm-hmm. or verified that no, there's nothing here in this site or that site. Mm-hmm. They knew full well. This was not something lost in the chaos of the,
0: the no. build up to the war of in 2003. It was a decade old, this story. But as we, yeah. But, so they knew, but as we... What do you mean when they knew? The, the Bush government knew and all the officials knew and the people knew. The people, Well, the yeah. people didn't necessarily know because they don't necessarily know anything even if it comes the people via knew. media.
5: The, the, sorry, the, the officials knew. The officials knew, the yeah. knew but... But yeah, they kn-
0: signed the checks, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. That's the thing, yeah. They knew that they had sold them to... They uh, know
5: exactly. I mean, there's that to, to famous, Kadan, famous yeah, uh, meeting of Rumsfeld I think in 1983 mm-hmm. in Baghdad, shaking hands with Saddam Hussein, yeah. congratulating him on the progress he's making. But the thing is, Iran. as we
0: know about as we know about psychopaths from ah research and psychopath psychopaths by, for example, Robert Hare, um, we know that for for a psychopath or the psychopathic mind, facts and the truth are mm. kind of funny, nebulous, not very well defined things. There's they can be real one moment, as long as they serve your purposes, and the next moment, that same fact can be not a fact anymore, it can be, you know, and <laughs> that, that's fascinating, the, the idea that they don't actually understand what a, what we mean when we say a fact. Mm-hmm. Well, a fact implies the idea of something, usually in, implies the idea of something external to yourself, something that can be verified externally and can be agreed upon by a, 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 several people in one person. Uh, it's almost it's close enough to objective reality, but yeah. it's something that regulates. Sure. Yeah, and if you look at the psychopathy, if you consider psychopathy from the point of view of extreme narcissism, you know that's extreme subjectivity and extreme uh, focus and involvement, focus on and involvement with the self, the self being the, the kind of the, the, the arbiter of reality essentially, uh, yeah. and therefore. For such a person, with such a with such a a mindset or su- such a a makeup, a, a psychological makeup, facts would be quite problematic in terms of them being objectively true outside of themselves, and that you're essentially um, governed or you have to submit to a certain extent to facts. Yeah. So your your beliefs problems. and your your choices, your options available to you, the next thing you do,
5: are regulated by your environment. Yeah. In other words. Well, I, I, you know, I might have a desire to do X, but I can't because I can immediately foresee going mm-hmm. to have a series of consequences mm-hmm. on others well, that's the and other aspect, on
0: myself. That's the other aspect of it. seeing the future, which is, I suppose, is tied to the idea of not being able to understand facts in a very clear way because they're so focused only on themselves and their own reality and themselves being the center of the universe essentially and everything else just being an extension of themselves. Therefore, it's all mutable. By them, if they decide that this shouldn't be the way it is, then it it, it it for them, and that gets back to our quote from the very beginning. You know where I'm not sure. Th- maybe readers wouldn't have heard that. What? you going to read it
5: out again? If, if we lost them in that opening quote, uh, I don't think we lost them in the opening quote. We lost them in the opening anyway, audio. Anyway, that quote mm-hmm. that, that we create reality. Yep, and and we all, create our uh, own reality. We create our own reality, well, that, and that, all of you directly understand. to what we're talking about. Here. Exactly. All of you will be left to study it. That was later attributed to Karl Karl by Carl Rove, yeah. who was uh, Bush's spin doctor, I suppose, yeah. like Alistair Campbell was to Tony Blair. Yeah. Exactly, yep. Yeah. Um, creating reality one step at a time. And w- w- this will come up later in the show as well. We'll see that in the past, um, the, the very things that some of these people like Cheney, Wolfowitz, Rumsfeld mm-hmm. have said one day, they've said the exact Opposite hmm? the next day.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing. That's one thing to really watch out for. Anybody who wants to is interested in psychopathy. Um, I mean, it ties in with the old adage of um, looking at someone's actions compared to, oh, sorry, sorry, looking to what someone says compared to what they do. You know, as a way to, and it's a kind of, it's almost folk wisdom at this at this point where it's you know that's how you can kind of judge a person's character. But I think that may actually come originally from uh, an observation of psychopathy, you know, someone who consistently says something in a very kind of heartfelt, genuine way, apparently, and then does exactly the opposite or does not do that. I mean, it's quite, yeah, it's quite startling to to, to observe that because usually most people, when they they talk about, by and large, what they talk about, especially with a conviction, they follow up on, but there are people who, those two are completely disconnected for you know what it's they funny say, how Totally disconnected from what they do. It's funny how I think
5: if, if someone was if someone was uh, seeing this in person, perhaps either in direct conversation with someone who was clearly coming across as a congenital liar, you, you, you know, the red flag will go up, and you'd be like, "What the hell is going on here?" But when it's said day in day out by leaders, authority figures. Something seems to glaze over, and, and those red flags don't don't go up, go up. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's alarming. Maybe it's because they do it so much, and they think they can't. Surely people cannot lie like that mm-hmm. Absolutely. to my face
3: yeah. every
5: day on the news, day in day out.
0: No, well, people don't believe it because they don't do it themselves. You know, yeah. The the Hitler was it Hitler or Goebbels? Goebbels code wasn't it about the yeah, big lie? Yeah, the big lie. Well, what was the third? Well, the third one, yeah. So we talked about uh, Saddam. Saddam did 9-11. Uh, nope, he didn't. That came out pretty quickly. Then, oh, Saddam's WMDs. Uh, no, within, within about, you know, the end of 2003, that was already exposed as a big lie. Then for the rest of the time, well, they threw in the odds Saddam was a bad man. You know, that became... Tony, a, Tony Blair and, and, and George Bush and, and various people. Well, they just they called him a bad man. I mean, it was completely pathetic. I mean, I was Asinine. like, oh jeez, there was times when my my George hit the floor. I was like, are you shitting me? <laughs> <laughs> That's your reason? He was a bad, bad man. man? <laughs> are you gonna go to war on all the bad men in the world? I mean, like talking to idiots. Like, I mean, they must really think that they're talking to idiots when you use that kind of language. But anyway, they threw in he was a bad man. That's why we did it. You know, we lied about the other things and we're just making up this next one, he's a bad man. But then as the chaos in Iraq uh worsened over the first few years, then it became and it has been more or less until now that they were there to keep the peace essentially. To um that they wouldn't leave Iraq in this state. That they themselves had created, they weren't going to leave them in this civil war type situation or sectarian violence, but they had to be there to keep the peace and in all of it there was nothing was said about their like even in his address to the nation Bush said they have no ambition, and clearly they did clearly the ambition was oil and above and beyond that I mean you can include israel, maybe um as part of the motivation, in terms of doing the bidding of the Israelis. Yeah, war for Israel. Uh, but obviously, there's a strong a- aspect of just psychopathic, the psychopathic destructive principle. Basically, just getting off, getting our jollies from waging war and destroying people and destroying destroying other countries, just a kick out of destruction and mayhem. And, and there's a strong element of that in, in what's been going on in Iraq, in terms of direct involvement by high-level American and British officials in the brutalization of individual Iraqis, as we'll get into in a little minute.
5: The the thing that stood out for me within a, within a couple of years, it became apparent that the situation there was just so far Gone. And okay, so you, uh, as you put it now, you know, okay, so we can think they're there getting their jollies.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Well, the extent of the corruption there was such that it was like they were, it was like they'd made the Wild West, you know, where anything goes. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, the stories coming out were just insane that they were actually. Shipping over billions of dollars in hard cash and laundering the money. Mm-hmm. Um, the this is before we can get to oil, by the way. The no bid contracts doled out in the billions, mm-hmm. if not trillions. I don't know. Yeah. No one knows. Yeah. Two companies, American companies, but also international. Not just the U.S. I mean, obviously. There was a lot of backroom stuff. Hey, you support the invasion of Iraq yeah, and you'll get something out of it. There'll be yep. something
0: in it for you. Yep. Um, that's what made up the coalition of the three or four willing. That was a motivation. Um, well, there were other countries. I mean, I think later on there were countries. I mean, Italy sent a contingent, you know, Poland. Yeah, but on a very short term basis.
5: Yeah. As if it's like a nominal contribution, like just a sort of symbolic.
0: Yeah, you know? well, it was you know if you stay, if you put this many x number of troops in for x number of time, you'll get x number of money. Yeah, the longer you 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 put them there, or the more troops you put, you'll get more money. that's it. It was a prorata kind of basis, you know. I don't think people realize
5: just how bad this event was. I mean, we've we described it in, in the show intro that this is one of the worst events. Yeah. Okay. There are other events where you could say more people died, or they lasted a longer time, but the sheer brazenness, the sheer lies, on which this was founded, and the subsequent carnage, and the fact that it continues, mm-hmm. I, I think. I think what what did it for me is the fact that it's it's been sold, or it's already gone down in history, as being a humanitarian... It's, it's the rhetoric that it's already wrapped in
0: that makes me just want to puke. Yeah, Operation Iraq, Iraqi Freedom. When you realize what it was really all about, I mean, how can it be humanitarian when it's official, officially accepted and acknowledged that the main reasons that were given for going to war, not going to war, for invading Iraq, were lies, that they were, that they were desperately... Making up anything they could to justify. I mean, that fact alone tells you that they had no good reason for invading Iraq. They only had bad reasons. Yeah, because they came up with a string of ridiculous and probably false good reasons. So they had no good reason. So they had a bad reason. So what was the bad reason? What was the reason that they were not willing to tell anybody? Well, it was basically to enrich themselves. And also part of the just, we want to go and destroy a country. We want, we want to use our military. We want to exercise our military. And yeah, we want to, you know, get our get our grubby hands on oil. And I mean, people try and I think people try too hard to come up with some kind of geostrategic, yeah, some in, some ultimate some motivator or some long analysis of why and all the different factors involved. And when it just comes down to pure greed. And pure destructive principle.
5: Yeah, well, That's analysis. You need. Analysis is fine so long as you come back to.
0: Yeah, you thing. can analyze, analyze how it happened because there is a lot of stuff to be told. Well, there is. Yeah, I mean, but in terms of, I'm talk, talking in terms of the the rationale, the reason, the ultimate reason for it. Yeah, I don't think it, it goes any further than being psychopaths and embodying the psychopathic destructive principle and also been extremely greedy, it being a pathology of greed. And that's about it, really. I mean, like I said, you don't need any more. There yeah. are no other... You don't need any kind of um, lofty ideological, you know, goals or reasons to,
6: to why they wanted
0: to go into yeah. this part of the world and, and for... You know... For resources, sure, but that's greed, yeah,
5: I think we we don't need any super grand strategy thinking uh, reason to understand what exactly were their objectives and did they achieve them or not, however, they very much use that language to explain their
3: rationale
5: mm. um, look at some of the the documents that. Uh, where the the idea of an overt war against Iraq first comes up with the purpose of removing Saddam Hussein, regime change and all that. Um, We've obviously got the PNAC document, Mm -hmm. Rebuilding America's Defenses,
3: Mm
5: -hmm. the project for a new American century, Mm -hmm. where the neoconservatives who sort of piggybacked into George W. Bush's administration in 2000 These guys had already identified Iraq as number one target, amongst a whole lot of other things. I mean, that document is is 90 pages, and it basically explains exactly what needs to be changed in the American military structure, the Pentagon structure. Uh, It outlines which countries need to be dealt with. Iraq being number one. talks about the introduction of drones and Mm UAVs. This is at a time the technology was still unknown to the public. Yeah. And this document was, I think, was first published in 1996. And, of course, there's an infamous quote in it basically says at the end, well, the thing is, we can't do any of all this stuff absent a catalyzing and catastrophic
0: event like a new Pearl Harbor. And then George Bush, on the evening of 9-11, wrote in his diary, allegedly, that America just got its new Pearl Harbor. Actually,
5: yeah, it's attributed to Bush. Yeah. There's a quote here. I think it's from journalist Greg Pallas. Before going to sleep, Bush wrote in his diary, The Pearl Harbor of the 21st century took place today. We think it's Osama bin Laden. <laughs> and I then, my Ben Pallas says, There's no evidence that Bush, the man who never reads, writes enough to keep a diary. The reference to a diary, diary would seem to be a vehicle to convey. Uh, that depth of Bush's capitulation to the rogue network behind nine eleven,
0: i.e., the neoconservatives, that yep. we've been talking about. Um, Absolutely, and obviously, you can't take, talk about the Iraq War without talking about nine eleven, which, without without which, there would probably have been no wars were in the past ten years, no U.S. invasions of any countries in the past ten years without nine eleven. It was the seminal event. And as we've often said, that is the day that everything really changed. It was the beginning of the end of any chance that we in the West certainly had of creating any kind of a, a decent or positive civilization, a global civilization, or, you know, even though having any, any hope for, for, a, for a bright future or a positive future because everything that happened, has happened since then has just been uh, the brutalization of so many people in so many places in so many different ways, uh, physically, psychologically, emotionally. Um, it's happening, and it's not just happening over there, it's happening at home in the US and in Europe, all of the changes that have happened that have been justified since uh justified by now 9 9, 9, 9, nine nine eleven so
5: yeah, it's the mass trauma of an event like that that seems to create an opening for people's values to be well rewritten in some way to be reconfigured mm-hmm. persistently you know terror terror terror, Iraq invade you know mm-hmm. i mean they, they could get away with what they were doing because, well, the emotional language, um, the, without ever af- having to actually prove the case, just flashing up on the screen um, an image of a a nuclear bomb going off mm-hmm. and then talking about Saddam Hussein. People were in this state where, you know, they they didn't even need to appeal to rationality. I think they realized that. Mm-hmm. I think with 9-11, they could do what they'd always wanted. If you look look at Iraq, for example, Iraq has long since on the hit list. I mean, with the first Gulf War...
0: Yeah, but let me just talk a bit about, about, expand a bit on that um, idea of 9-11 changing people. uh, Or certainly certainly 9-11 changed people uh, in terms of opening them to all sorts of propaganda and lies and accepting all sorts of propaganda and lies in the years since then. Uh, But there has been a real dehumanizing effect on people as a result of what has happened. People have been, as a result of 9-11, people have sanctioned the invasion of other countries and the murder of their fellow human beings. Uh, Not only have they sanctioned it, they've essentially welcomed it or cheered it. Uh, because under the idea that it was good for them. You know, they saw it as a positive thing. They're, you're talking about getting large a large percentage of the population to believe that killing their fellow human beings is good. Now that has to have some kind of a psychological effect. And I'm just wondering uh, if it's correlated to, because it seems to me that in the past 10 years, since about 2000, things have gone downhill socially and culturally, if we can say culturally, in the West. The level of crass TV programming, and the crassness of of many areas of society, particularly in in terms of entertainment and culture, is kind of staggering. You know, it shocks me every day when I look out there at what is passed off as culture or interesting or something for people to do or something, you know, some kind of positive pastime for people to to engage in, you know? And I'm wondering if, if the effects of the invasions and the brutalization of other human beings that have been done in the name of many people in this world, particularly in the West, has in some way, you know, dehumanized them or done something to their own natures, you know, by by, by the fact of them accepting it and being encouraged to accept it accept it and, and accepting it, that that has then led to just this disintegration or the real deterioration of their values and even their thinking power. You know, they become half wits, they become idiots, you know? I mean there was a, a story I was looking at today, um it was a A museum, I think it was a British museum, um, where an actress, she's a fairly famous actress, but she put on an art display. This was art. And she was, for seven hours a day, she was in a glass case in a gallery, sleeping on a bed. And I saw pictures of this and there were... That was the art. That was the art. And there were dozens of people or more. It was a large crowd of people. It was just one picture, but apparently I had been attracting a lot of people. To look at her sleeping, and that was art. Now, tell me that that is not the art of a bunch of half wits, a <laughs> bunch of real village idiots. I mean, seriously. <clears throat> and I'm just wondering if there isn't a correlation between that and the, uh, you know, the. Uh, uh, of course, it's, you know, we've talked previously about the spread of psychopathic kind of ideals or psychopathic morality throughout society, but I'm wondering if there's something something essential that hasn't been lost. In a lot of people as a result of them accepting the idea of torture and killing and war is good and freedom and democracy, believing that going off and invading another country and killing 1.5 million people is freedom and democracy and it's keeping them safe and it's helping the Iraqis when the, when the lies are so blatant and the truth should be so obvious. When people believe those lies and internalize them, it ultimately destroys them in some way or other or certainly destroys their thinking and their 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 ability to just be normal human beings, you know? I think it's been said that
5: the the act of actually believing a lie um has a direct effect on someone's brain there and then. Yeah. It, it was explained in a study exactly what what's going on in the process. I mean, it, the net result is a kind of re, rewiring where um on the one hand people become desensitized Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, in some ways, they become hypersensitive, where the slightest hint of fear or danger or threat sends them over the edge, and they, they start doing crazy things. You mean when they believe lies? When they believe lies, when there's something, you know, something maybe slightly terrifying in the news. Maybe there's a story about. Uh, yeah, or, or even even when it's not a terrifying thing, you know, when like we've discussed in the show, when uh, a kid gets
0: arrested yeah. in his school, because mm-hmm. he talked about being in his toilet. Well, day. that's maybe what you're talking about there is hysteria, basically the, that the effect of leaving lies, really blatant ones, and internalizing internalizing them and uh, turns you into a hysterical idiot, which is close enough. Yeah, I mean, those, yeah. <laughs> I mean you're either an idiot, a dimwit, or a halfwit, or a or a hysterical output. And you, you can't help but wonder if it's a concerted
5: campaign because, I mean, in terms of crass entertainment, that TV show 24, it's uh-huh. not the only one that's guilty of this, but I think it was the most popular. You know, making torture seem normal. I'm sorry, but it the day you accept torture of another person, yeah, is it, the day... It, it, you killed your own spirit, mm-hmm. if I can speak in those terms. Never mind what it does to your neurophysiology. Yeah. And one after the other, as as things came out in Iraq about what was really like there, both for the uh, both for the population, the local population, and for let's say for the troops that went there, sincere in heart. We were just horrified by what they saw, and his lives have been destroyed by it. Yeah.
0: eighteen suicides a day on average in the military.
5: I think most most U.S. deaths were suicides.
0: Um, I don't know. Well, that's that's another contentious point about the actual number of dead in Iraq. I think it's far higher than they're suggesting. That's not four four or five thousand what they claim. It's probably more like forty to fifty thousand. Yeah, and well over a hundred thousand injured. And um, because that would fit with other similar types of conflicts uh, in the 20th century in terms of numbers when you're fighting against a a, a, kind of, a guerrilla war. I mean, you don't get away in 10 years with, um, with a few thousand casualties, you know. But um, we're just going to pause here for a moment. I know we started late but we're going to pause here anyway for a little word from our real sponsors this time and we'll be back at this.
4: Since ancient times, great civilizations have risen and fallen. The Biblical plagues and the collapse of the Old Kingdom of Egypt, the Plague of Justinian and the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Black Death that devastated Europe. Could similar catastrophes strike our planet again? Laura Knight Yadchik's latest book, Comets in the Horns of Moses, provides compelling evidence that the course of human history has been defined by extraordinary and devastating cosmic events. Drawing on her extensive study of history, religion, psychology and physics, Laura uncovers clues hidden in the great myths, ancient astronomy and the works of the Greek philosophers to unveil the secret knowledge of the ages, cyclical cosmic catastrophe, the periodical return of an extraterrestrial threat whose power moved mountains, reduced magnificent cities of old to rubble and left the most powerful emperors trembling in fear. Comets in the Horns of Moses is a groundbreaking work that sheds light on our dark ages to reveal a timely warning to humanity. The clock is running down on our civilization. Comets in the Horns of Moses. Available now for purchase from all Amazon websites.
0: Yes, indeed. That was just a little advertisement for Laura's latest book, Comets and the Horns of Moses. It's an excellent book, and I advise everybody to get it because, despite what we're talking about here, it really gives you the broad, big picture understanding of what we're dealing with and the real threat, as a, as we just heard, the real threat to humanity. Although, on a day to day basis, obviously, there's there are threats, uh, but they're not, there are threats from the kind of things we're talking about here in terms of psychopath inspired war and aggression. But that's not unlinked, potentially, to the topic of lower book commas, homos, and moses. So uh, we, we really recommend you get yourself a copy. Yeah. Um, and if
5: you're paying attention to SOT lately, you've probably noticed the number of fireballs being recorded has gone through the roof. I don't think I can keep up with them these no. days. <laughs> there are so many. Yep. Um, I've done some rough number crunching. Um, Based on the baseline of the American Media Society, they do a report. They they collect reports and they verify them, blah, blah, blah. And there was a jump in 2010 of 50% over Uh 2009, a 50% jump in 2011 over 2010, and last year. So far this year, the rate, monthly rate, is 50% over last year. So it is exponentially, (laughs) well, 50%. It's doubling. It's doubling all the time. Year on year. Um, That's kind of scary. It's it's real, you know. So, the Iraq War, they gave us all these reasons for going. They said, we'll be in, we'll be out, we'll be home by Christmas kind of thing. Mm -hmm.
0: Flowers thrown at us.
5: Yeah, we'll be greeted as, you know, liberators, they'll worship the U.S. military because we're so great. What the hell happened then? Because you had... Officially, the war was over in a month. Then you had George W. striding down, George W. jockstrap, in a, what was it, an F 16 or something, landing on the, the cruiser, you know, a U.S. carrier, uh, mission accomplished. And what,
0: that was the end? Well, no. Well, uh, yeah, then that was the next, next, next month, uh, the violence really took off. So, but what what really happened people need to understand that obviously as you said it wasn't a war it was an invasion and when it's long since been known particularly by western um, the powers that be in the west the psychopaths in power that when you invade a sovereign country um, you can tell the people back home whatever you want this goes back hundreds of years really you can tell your people back home, whatever you want, to convince them that it's all good. But the people being invaded and occupied have a very different understanding of it, and a much more realistic understanding of it. And the people in Iraq very quickly understood that this was uh, an invasion and an occupation. And it had ulterior motives, despite what George Bush said. They had no ambition. They certainly had ambition. And the, the ambition was to plunder and pillage the entire country to the detriment of Iraqi people. That quickly became obvious. So quickly you had a large number of Iraqi people who were against the invasion. Surprise, surprise. I mean, what a strange thing that people would be against being invaded and occupied. Of course they are. So they know this and they prepare for it in advance. And what they look to do is to exacerbate or incite or provoke, however minimal, any sectarian or religious or social or cultural divides within a country. And usually it's not quite possible to do that because generally there's nothing better an invasion by, uh, by a foreign power to unite a country against those invaders. So what they've done on many occasions throughout the 20th century and in fact beforehand is that when they invade a, a foreign country they organize groups as as many as are needed of essentially death squads to go around terrorizing the local population because the local population that support people who take up arms against the invasion it's they're just they're just the front guard or the, the advance guard the real support for them and the real power for an inter, uh, a resistance movement comes from the population within the country so the goal all along in Iraq was to attack the Iraqi people and to terrorize and kill and mean and torture the Iraqi people into submission because that, they were the enemy to the occupation and the invasion and the plunder of Iraq's resources. And whatever other reasons you want to come up with for why they did it, what the real ambition was the thing that stood in, stood in the way of that ambition was the Iraqi people. So the attack was on the Iraqi people. This was an attack on the Iraqi people. It wasn't an Iraq war. It was a U.S.-British attack on the 26 million Iraqi people. So it wasn't about just get Saddam saying out everything will be rosy. They knew otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what they did was, and this has been exposed, it's been known for quite some time, but it's been exposed in a, in a documentary recently, by BBC Arabic and uh, The Guardian, although they did a kind of half-assed job on it. But they basically did a story on death squads, what they call Shia death squads. So the Sunnis and Shias in Iraq. Saddam was a Sunni mm-hmm. who are a minority and the Shia was a major- majority. And they maybe felt a little bit put out by Iraq maybe favoring Sunnis. But you know, by and large, like you just said at the beginning, Iraq was a, a secular uh, Muslim country. Uh, and it was had the highest level of education. It was a very wealthy and evolved country, and most people in Iraq were actually happy enough with their lot. It was it was they actually had quite a a good level, a good standard of living. Um, so they organise Shia escorts, what they call Shia escorts, but they were basically anybody they could get who would take money to be their, their death squad hitmen type of thing, to terrorise uh, the population. So they got as many psychopaths as they could together, give them all badges and guns and cars. This is the US doing this, right, under the direction of a guy called, he's a former colonel James Steele, who reported it directly to Donald Rumsfeld, and he organised, he oversaw the organisation of these death squads <clears throat> made up mainly of Iraqis um, who would carry out murder and torture on demand. and But the thing about it is they call them Shia death squads. And this is where the whole sectarian conflict or sectarian or civil war idea comes in. They try to claim it was a civil war because they claim they were Shia death squads attacking Sunnis. But this is ridiculous because one of the main resistance groups in Iraq was a Shia group who was fighting the occupation. Yeah. So how could it be a civil war between Shia and Sunni, as, as in Shias attacking Sunnis, when in fact a majority of the Shia were aligned with a group that was against the occupation and their leader, who his name is uh, Muqtad al-Sadr, he on several occasions came out and said and appealed to all of the Iraqi people to fight against the resistance, or, sorry, to fight against the occupation. So this is just a lie, the whole idea of a civil war. This is what they've done repeatedly. They try to create the impression of a civil war. And certainly they scare the crap out of people and terrify people and terrorize people by having these death squads going around abducting, torturing, and killing ordinary people. And they set off bombs. But of course, you know, the, the special ops guys amongst the U.S. military and the British military have a direct hand in this themselves. As we noted in 2005, in September 2005, two British SAS members were caught in Iraq, in Basra, driving a car. They were dressed in Arab garb, driving a car full of explosives. And they had already shot one policeman. And their car was, was essentially a car bomb. And they were on their way to drop it off somewhere and detonate a car bomb. Two British soldiers dressed as Arabs. Now you can just extrapolate from there as to what was actually going on in all those car bombings and supposed ethnic or sectarian conflict. It was all being deliberately exacerbated and provoked as a way to divide the country, divide the population, terrorise them, and divide them along religious lines. And I mean, that's very effective if you go around. I mean, they killed hundreds of thousands of people this way. There were just report after report,
5: you know. 50 headless bodies turn up, dumped outside
0: lo- yeah. local police headquarters or yeah. whatever. It was horrific. Oh.
5: Car me, bombing after car bombing. Uh, let
0: me just, let me just, this guy, John Steele, or sorry, James Steele, former uh, colonel, was in Iraq as a civilian, sent there by Donald Rumsfeld. He had a history of, uh, in the military, obviously. He was in El Salvador where he did exactly the same thing, where he he cut his teeth on death squads, on organizing death squads, to deal with the uh, resistance against a U.S. imposed dictator in El Salvador in the 80s. That's where he learned his trade, and he was then sent to Iraq to do exactly the same thing, to deal with any resistance to U.S. interests, U.S. occupation, U.S. control, U.S. plunder of the country that they were in. And there's a guy, an Iraqi general, a former Iraqi general now, um, who was interviewed about this guy, Steele, he met him, and he had this to say about him.
7: Steele made a strong impression with the high-level, even battle-hardened Iraqis he worked with. The best description for him is that he lacks human feeling.
4: I mean, The number of wars he's witnessed and the various methods of torture
7: that must have been committed, whether in Iraq or elsewhere, somehow their hearts have died. General Muntada al-Samari is a former general in the Iraqi army. After the invasion, he worked with the Americans to rebuild the police force. But Muntada was very disturbed by the abuse and torture he witnessed being committed by the police commandos. He tried on a number of occasions to stop it. He has never spoken before about the part the US played in running the special police commandos. The Ministry of Interior had 14 to 15 prisons. They were secret,
0: never declared. But the American top brass and the Iraqi leadership knew all about these prisons. The things that went on there, drilling, Murder, torture, the ugliest sorts of torture I've ever seen. So that's his opinion on this guy, James Steele. Uh, he has a direct, ex- direct experience of it because he left in 2005, but he was there initially until he realized what was going on. Someone uh, incapable of human feeling. Well, yeah, he said he the best be. description is that their, their hearts had died, and this is what he was describing, James Steele, who d- yeah. reported direct, was sent to Iraq by Don Grumsfeld. And reported directly to him with the job. He was sent to Iraq with the with the job of organizing, as he had done in El Salvador, organizing death squads to attack, supposedly the resistance. But these are people who are resisting a foreign occupation of their country and who understand that their country is being destroyed and pillaged. Well, so, then, what they also attacked, by far, because they were easier targets, by far, but far more often they attacked ordinary. Iraqi yeah. civilians. It, it
5: it would never have been acknowledged that they're doing this to counter the resistance. The term is counterinsurgency. You see well that's what w- we're thing. we're doing this to counter the insurgency, which is by nature violent, therefore we have to get down and dirty with them. That's just the hard facts of war. God help us. Mm. That was the fallback reason for why this kind of thing went on, if it ever came up. I don't think it did really, but counterinsurgency. But the the trick in that is not that you're countering something that's been done by the others. You are doing all that. And it's justifying your reprisals against the genuine resistance. I mean, we're talking about uh, raids, nighttime raids by the, the, the regular U.S. troops would then be sent in, you know, based on some intel or whatever that's tortured out of someone they would go in and terrorize the crap out of whole neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So there was at the height of it in 2006, they were doing sweeps of the whole of Baghdad district yeah. by district.
0: Yep. Millions of people. Yep. Yeah, we can't excuse the U.S. military. The U.S. military, despite what many people think, uh, <clears throat> were uh, murderers. Most of them, by and large, I can't, obviously there are were, there, there were different people uh, in the military with different attitudes and stuff. But by and large, if you're part of the U.S. military and you were in Iraq, then you took part in murder. You may not have directly taken part in it yourself, but you are part, you're part of a large incident of murderers who went around murdering, kicking in doors at night, and shooting and killing innocent people. And this is what the U.S. population, these are the people that the U.S. population cheers. And, uh, you know, wears little badges for, support our troops, aren't they wonderful, aren't they great? No, it's not, they're murderers.
5: And this is why so many of them prefer Post-traumatic stress, and yes. you know, those those who have a conscience, who have a conscience, so, and going on? And know better. At least they know better now. I hope. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't end there, of course. I mean, I'm sure many of our listeners in the U.S. have heard stories, you know, of troops coming back home, and just the stuff they get up to when they come back home, because they're so. Um, what's the word? They're so war sick or war, or affected by the actual war that it just carries on. The violence carries on at mm-hmm. home.
0: Uh, well, it's PTSD and traumatized. I mean, who knows? Various different ways that different people react to it. Some of them commit suicide. Some of them kill other people. Some of them just spend the rest of their lives depressed. Yeah, um, they can cope with some of medication just to
5: just to live another day. And and it's had. A, that's another effect. We were talking earlier about, you know, the effects of on a whole population of believing a lie and becoming half-wits, mm-hmm. you know, by increments. But the mm-hmm. direct effect is you've got, what, a million tr- troops, I think, have done tour a million American males, young males have done a tour in Iraq mm-hmm. of, of some length or another, yep. gone home, and the direct effect on, what, their immediate family, yeah, their friends, their colleagues, whoever. it polarizing, it, this is serious... If they had any heart to begin with, when they went out there, and yeah. they came home with none, well, just just try and imagine. Well, you probably most Americans probably don't have to imagine; they've heard the stories. Absolutely, but um, but that, that's is a one. direct horrific effect on U.S. society. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in Iraq, yep. I mean, when Abu Ghraib came out, I thought, oh, <laughs> surely this is this is like a big exposure. Surely. This is going to, you know, mm-hmm. heads are going to roll here. Tip of the iceberg. Holy mackerel. This stuff, the images, the photos,
3: mm-hmm. they're still
5: freely. Available. I mean, it's like they were like, yeah, sure, whatever. Distribute them. Mm-hmm. There was no effort made to try and mm-hmm. rein them in. Mm-hmm. They were posing. These were prison guards, like low-level ranking
3: mm-hmm.
5: junior officers, whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. guarding these torture centers, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, taking photos of themselves. Yeah doing sex acts on groups of males, on children, Mm -hmm. on women, Mm -hmm. smearing feces on their faces.
0: putting them in stress positions, torturing them basically in a a very brutal way. And this was all the stuff we were
5: told Saddam Hussein does to his people. Mm -hmm. That's why we're going in there. He's a killer. He's a bad man because he kills his own people. Well, there's actually little evidence for that. And then the U.S. goes in and creates the very reality mm-hmm. they accuse him of. Well, that's a psychopaths too. Yeah. Um, it's a mind-bender. And
0: I wonder if... What I wonder is if anybody has any questions or any comments, because obviously we have strong opinions on this. <laughs> you may have noticed we have strong opinions on it. If you have a strong opinion one way or the other, or a question or anything like that, feel free to call in and uh, we will do our best to answer your questions. Um, so,
5: you're talking about these death squads, right? So, in 2003, I think it was May first or earlier even. Bush does his mission accomplished, mm-hmm. as in the mission's over, mm-hmm. as in the war's over, and now we pass it on to the new regime. Or it mm-hmm. took a while before there was a new. That's why right, there was a, ta- a caretaker government. Yeah. Led
0: by the American Paul Bremer, well, the Coalition Provisional Authority uh, (CPA). CPA. Um, he was there just to make sure all the oil contracts were signed off to American American companies. Yeah, and all the other rebuilding—in quotes—contracts were were signed off. No, no, very little rebuilding was ever done, but a large amount of money was paid to defense contractors to do this rebuilding that never happened. They got the money, but they didn't do anything. So that's just an aspect of it. It's just a way to loot the country, you know, using oil revenue. And then for future oil sales and control of the Iraqi oil, that uh, they were signed off. Bremner basically, Bremner was a dictator for that first year yeah. or, or more than a year that he was in Iraq. He was a dictator. He, he could sign anything and everything into law, and he did. Yeah. I mean, they took complete control of the country and just installed him as dictator, and then passed it off to this, a couple of CIA stooges. uh, Ahmed uh, Chabi, who was a CIA asset, unknown CIA asset, he became the interim prime minister, and then a succession of others. um, To the point that today, you you know, Iraq is Iraq is still destroyed. It is there are still daily almost bombings, car bombings, that's still these people who are continuing to put pressure on because they figure that the job isn't done yet. They haven't restructured or reformed Iraq. The Americans have not reformed Iraq fully in their own likeness, i.e. a fascist, capitalist form of government and society. So they're still putting the pressure on in terms of blowing people up and killing people. The last remnants of any resistance to that the the that remaking of Iraq. Um and and they're they're in complete control of it. I mean the the US are still in control, fully in control of Iraq. They have stage managed the process of democratisation of Iraq all the way, right up until this day.
5: Yeah. Freedom and democracy and it's um it's Iraq's it's Iraq's turn. Yep.
0: This the turn of Syria. Yeah this uh, um, there's yeah, and of course, uh, you know, you had all of the, the mercenaries. I mean, you had you had various different, you know, you, they really did a number on them. You know, they had you had 100, 120, 100, 100 and some thousand U.S. troops, a bunch of whom were just going over to kick some, kick some raghead ass and, and shoot some sand niggers, as they call them. And uh, <clears throat> so you had those. Then you had an even bigger contingent of mercenaries, Civilian contractors like Xe today, Black Blackwater back then, Xe today, who are basically have no, they have no, uh, there's no oversight, there's no, they have nothing to stop them doing whatever they want, and they just arbitrarily kill people as you've seen in the videos shooting people in the street. There are up to two thousand, two hundred thousand of them, and then you had this specialist group of say of five to ten thousand, uh, Iraqi police commandos as they were called, or Shia. Death squads, but they were just basically U.S. death squads, employed, paid by the U.S. under the direct supervision of Rumsfeld and his man in Iraq, James Steele, and they were there to do the the, the pinpoint, you know, terrorization. Well, they were all doing it. I mean, they were all involved in the same game, you know. But the particularly brutal, uh, deliberate acts of torture and killing were done by this uh, these death squads that were sent by Rumsfeld, as has been done, like we said, many times in the past. And so I'll just give you another um, another little insight into this guy, James Steele, who was the torturer, essentially, the death squad man-in-chief
7: Samara was the first place that the connection between James Steele and the activities of the police commanders was made known to the outside world. New York Times journalist Peter Maas convinced General Petraeus to allow him and photographer Gilles Perez to visit the commanders in Samara. Their host was James Steele.
6: What I heard is is prisoners screaming all night long. You know, at which point you have the young US captain telling his soldiers, don't come near this thing.
7: Gilles Perret's stark black and white photographs capture how the commandos worked in Samara. James Steele crops up in these photographs
6: repeatedly. I was staying at the base in Samara, an American base, and I overheard soldiers, American soldiers at this base, talking about having watched prisoners be kind of strung up like animals after a hunt over a bar, um, having watched prisoners be actually tortured. Adnan
7: Tarbit and the American military made the joint decision to set up the commando headquarters and interrogation center in the city's main library. We spoke to two men from Samara who were imprisoned in the library. Still fearful, they asked us to conceal their identities.
4: We would be blindfolded and handcuffed behind our backs. Then they would beat us with shovels and pipes. We'd be tied to a spit or we'd be hung from the ceiling by our hands and our shoulders would be dislocated. They electrocuted me. They hung me from the ceiling. They were pulling at my ears with pliers, stamping on my head, asking me about my wife, saying they would bring her here.
6: The interrogation center was the only place in the kind of mini green zone in Samara that I was not allowed to visit. However, one day Jim Steele said to me, hey, they just captured a Saudi jihadi. Um, would you like to interview him?
7: Mas. And Peres were about to get an unprecedented glimpse into this clandestine world.
6: And we kind of walk into the entrance area, and the first thing that I see is one of the Iraqi guards beating up one of the Iraqi prisoners. And then I'm taken not into the main area, kind of the main hall, um, although out of the corner of my eye I could see there were a lot of prisoners in there with their hands tied behind their backs. I was taken to a side office where the Saudi was brought in, and there was actually blood dripping down the side of a desk in this office. We're in a room in the library interviewing Steele, and I'm looking around. I see blood everywhere, you know. And while this interview was going on, me and the Saudi with Jim Steele also in the, the room, there were these terrible screams. There was somebody shouting, Allah, Allah, Allah. But it wasn't, you know, kind of religious ecstasy or something like that. These were, these were screams of, of pain and terror. So, if you want an abiding
0: picture of what the Iraq invasion and occupation has been all about what defines it really is that image that the New York Times reporter just conveyed to you of going in to a room to interview james Steele that is Donald Rumsfeld's emissary to Iraq, and in the room that he was that Steele was in where he was being inter- where he was interviewing Steele, there was blood everywhere, and James Steele sitting in the middle of it, smiling. Yes? What are your questions? Any questions? Freedom and democracy? Yes. Let me just wipe this blood off my desk
5: before I shake your hand. Before I shake, Wipe this blood off
0: my hand before I shake your hand. Yeah.
5: God. Something that something I've wondered about is why Iraq? I mean, an event like 9-11 gave him carte blanche they could have done it. I mean, they went into Afghanistan right away.
0: Same story there, yeah. But they still had, let's say, lots of
5: revenge fuel in the tank and it was all geared and spent
0: on Iraq. Um, well, Afghanistan was invaded first and then Iraq and two so those are on either side of Iran. So you got to figure that there's some, some attempt there to hem in Iran and also it's just south of you know, Russia and Russia's sphere of influence. So it is, there's a certain geostrategic game being played there, but it's all fueled by greed, you know. It's rationalized in flowery geostrategic uh, terms by think tanks and stuff like that, but it's just motivated from the top by greed and the destructive principle. And it's been going on a long time, obviously, because uh, back in during the World War... Actually, the
5: story well, who knows where it begins, but it begins a little bit before the First World War when a company was set up in London. It's gone through a couple of names, but eventually became the Iraqi or Iraq Petroleum Company. And this was um, a cartel of the biggest French and British oil companies. And they were actually competing with, um, the Germans at the time. This is before World War I actually broke out. The Germans were building the famous Berlin to Baghdad Railway and part of that was greased by oil deals because oil had become the new black gold around about 1910, turn of the century. And
0: oil was going to fuel the Industrial Revolution Well, it already, it already started but it was going to, it was now the commodity would yeah. make the difference between a, a developed nation and an underdeveloped nation right? in terms of control of it. And this company, which today is still on paper, it's still
5: actually an active company, is still based in London, was formed, and Iraq as such didn't exist. The territory was part of the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. which sided with the Germans in World War One. Mm-hmm early on, 1915, early on in the First World War, the French and British agreed to divide up spheres of influence in the region.
0: Yeah, after, divide up the Ottoman Empire, essentially. Yeah, carve it up between them. Spoils of war.
5: Yeah. Spoils of old wars,
0: giving rise to new wars.
5: What came out of that was the creation of the country we know today as Iraq. Literally, it was carved up based on this commodity of corporate interest. So its very foundation is based on oil. So in 1920, as part of the Treaty of Versailles, negotiations with Germany, um,
0: at the Femme Conference in 1920, we have the creation of this new state, Iraq, a kingdom... The British Mandate of Mesopotamia.
5: Yeah, which the, the British government would control. Control. Uh, This new country, France, would control the new country of Syria to the north and Lebanon. And uh, a king was put in power. I think he was actually a Jordanian, Mm -hmm. uh, King Faisal. And right away, the British realized, they they probably already knew it from plenty of experience, that the local population would not be happy with you dictating to them Mm -hmm. how things are going to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: and already in those days did you say that Winston Churchill yeah, was well, something well, infamous?
0: Yeah, I mean that was the first time that the Brits used, uh, I think it might have been the first time that chemical weapons were used ever because they were just a, a new technology at the time but Winston Churchill organized um, or ordered the use of uh, chemical weapons, I think mustard gas on the Arabs in Iraq who were revolting against the, the British imposed monarchy and uh he you know he, he, he said something about unruly Arabs or unruly natives that the best way to uh, to deal with them is, is is mustard gas. Uh and this is Churchill who is who is lauded Revered. As, as, as as a statesman to beat all statesmen by the bits, you know, and that sickens me every time. Churchill was a psychopath through and through. He was the most evil person, not the most evil person. But he was up there among the top ten, right up of, there yeah. of the twentieth century. And everything that he did. He was truly evil, disgusting, despicable, excuse for a human being. And if he was here now, I'd tell him. <laughs> well, that's that. Show some of those cigars
5: down.
0: Anyway, carry on before I get carried away.
5: Well, of course, part of the new regime, uh, it was a client regime from the beginning, was that 100% of the proceeds of oil discoveries went to the Iraqi Petroleum Company, which Mm -hmm. was nothing Iraqi. It was owned by the companies that became Shell, BP, Total, in France. Mm -hmm. And it remained that way, unchanged, that basic oil deal, Mm -hmm. until the 1960s. Mm -hmm. It began to change a bit when there was a revolution in 1958. There was Mm -hmm. a coup d'etat, a general in the the Iraqi army Mm -hmm. came to power. At which point, well, I think the Americans were already interested, but they
0: got heavily involved from this point onwards. Yeah, yeah, the Brits and the Americans in 1963. Um, uh, well, there was a revolution that opened through the monarchy in 1958, and then yeah, uh, and then a kind of counter. And Saddam Hussein was supported at that time by. The Americans and the Brits. He wasn't there on the scene yet. No, he was there in 1963, I think. Okay, but he's still a junior. Yeah. And
5: then some other guy, whose name escapes me, but he reminded me of um, the Iranian leader, Mossadegh. Mm -hmm. Like, an actual, genuinely democratic leader who sincerely wants to help people, Mm -hmm. his people. Um, Name escapes me, but anyway, this was the beginning of Iraq using getting some control over its own resources and using it to help people get out of grinding poverty, Mm -hmm. get some control in their own lives. This began in 1972, which means that for the first 60 years of 50 some years of its creation, it was 100% a client regime. In Mm -hmm. the sense that, no, let's not call it let's call it a colony, which is what it was. Mm -hmm. From the start for 50 years, 1972. What changes was um, Saddam Hussein, not the leader yet. This other Mossadegh-like guy, I can't remember his Mm -hmm. name, was still the top man, but Saddam was most uh, influential in nationalizing Mm -hmm. the oil resource for Iraq, creating a national company, Mm -hmm. and basically booting BP, Shell, Total out of the country.
0: And then from then on, you had to build up to the Gulf War. Well, you had the Iran-Iraq War,
3: well, yeah,
0: the first, in which they supported Iraq to try and get in the good side of Iraq, but Saddam wasn't playing ball even after that. And
5: Saddam was by no means a saint. In the 70s, he still wasn't the top guy. Mo- the most stable period in Iraq's history, mm-hmm. when it became a uh, secular country, when uh, universal education, free education, universal health care, all the things that we, well, we did take for granted in the West at some point in the not too distant past um, came to this little country that actually bootstrapped itself out once it was able to nationalize its own resources uh-huh. and reinvest the money back in this country. And then Saddam Hussein takes exclusive power in the late seventeen
3: nine mm-hmm.
5: and clearly it wasn't there there must have been something about him that it be, he did contribute to Iraq's downfall in a way because he got Iraq into god awful mess in the 80s by listening to the CIA by meeting Rumsfeld mm-hmm. by saying yes that's a good idea I will attack Iran bad mistake there were a million casualties in that war and it it Set Iraq back a, a good ten years or more uh-huh. on any progress they had made. So now we're coming up to the Gulf War. Uh-huh. Iraq is a U.S. ally. It means that effectively being a good client regime. Yeah. What happened on the eve of that war? Saddam only invaded Kuwait because he had. He he thought he had the backing yeah. of the U.S. He was encouraged,
0: him.
5: yeah. Right up to the end, he met with the U.S. ambassador, yeah, and she told whatever she told him. I can't. I, she I said, know. "We're
0: not. We have no interest in uh, what we um, we have no interest in what we deem a, an internal affair to Iraq, i.e., because Iraq uh, Saddam had always seen Kuwait as part of Iraqi territory, and he took that as okay. The Americans don't mind. I'm going to invade Iraq or Kuwait, and uh, they just said, oops, we changed your mind.'" Fact that we told you the other day isn't true today, and um, and then the first Gulf War, which was basically a turkey shoot, and and then it's they stopped. They stopped because they figured that that, that would be enough to uh, to to rein them in. They still had control in the in the area, in the region, and uh, that, that and that they were planning then sanctions uh, for much of the 90s against. Brutal sanctions against Iraq killed half a million children that uh, Madeleine Albright thought was uh, worth it and countless more adults. And that seemed to be a softening up. So it seems that the plan to ultimately invade Iraq was always on the table. Yeah, softening up by sanctions through the 90s was in preparation for um, this grand invasion and 9-11, as you said, was the justification 9-11 was needed for the boots on the ground yeah. sending of uh, large numbers of U.S. military and entire U.S. military machine halfway around the world. Um, and the rest is history. And the rest is
5: history and the intense, the intense interest on one country, on one part of the Middle East has cost... So much I mean obviously to the do the Iraqi people, but I think this is um, the, the expression's been said somewhere i can't remember where I think it's been said about Afghanistan that Afghanistan is the graveyard the graveyard of empires of empires I think that's a reference to the British Empire, yeah, and then later and the Russians the Russians, but Iraq has been america's graveyard I say that because. If you think of all
0: that has happened since then, have we got a call before, or before before we think of that, we're gonna take a call here, okay, hi, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from?
5: Hello, anybody
0: there? I see a name here, Zoya. Maybe our connection is going to <clears throat> let us down again. Zoya, we can't hear you. Oh, um, so maybe you want to can hang up? I... Yeah, we can hear you oh, now. Something
8: there. You hear me?
0: Yeah, go ahead.
8: Oh, so how are you?
0: Pretty good. How are you?
8: Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Okay. Uh Well, first of all, I wanted to thank you for the show, um, okay. and to tell you how much I appreciate everything you do on SOT. Thank you. Uh, and also, I wanted to ask you to talk about the, um, if you can speak about the Israeli angle and invasion of Iraq. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's uh, that that was the elephant in the room.
8: Well. <laughs> yes.
0: Okay. Well, what do you what do you think? Uh, what do you have an opinion on it or?
8: Well, you see, uh, actually, not long ago, I was reading an article, um, a, an anniversary article of the uh, invasion of Iraq. And mm-hmm. uh, the author mentions uh, an article written by an Israeli uh, journalist. It's called A Strategy for Israel in the 1980s. And it was yeah. published. Yeah. And it was, published, it was published in one of the in, in one of the Hebrew language journals affiliated with the World Zionist Organization. And it said there, Iraq, rich in oil, on the one hand, and internally torn on the other, is guaranteed as a candidate for Israel's targets. Advised Inon, it's the journalist. Its dissolution is even more important for us than that of Syria. Iraq is stronger than Syria. In the short run, it is Iraqi power which constitutes the greatest threat to Israel. So, I find it interesting that basically it was first of all was said in 1980s and mm-hmm. uh, and second of all that basically right now they got rid of Iraq and Syria is next in line.
0: <laughs> mhm.
8: So, yeah, uh, that's a very
0: good <laughs> point. And I think we can talk about that. For sure.
5: I, I actually, thank you, Zoe. I read that paper recently, although I, I'd seen reference to it before. Um, and yeah, what this guy, I think it's am so dead to is exactly what's come to pass. Um, it is, I think it's this, it's this conversion of, convergence of interest, where what's good for Israel is good for the U.S. And vice versa. Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to the Middle East, um, this plays out again and again. The thing for Israel.
3: We're
0: getting a lot of feedback here. Yeah. Yeah.
8: yeah.
0: We're getting a lot of. Okay, no, it's a bit better now. We're getting a lot of feedback. Z- Zoya, do you have your speakers on? Do I have my speakers listen on? To the show? Yeah, are you second. listening to the show? Just while... Yeah, tell you what, Zoya, we're gonna...
8: we'll, uh, we'll just
0: hang up here because there's a lot of interference and then we'll just answer your question. Is that okay? Yeah, it's
8: perfectly okay. Thank you.
0: Okay. All right. Thanks for
8: calling. Right. Yeah, no problem.
5: So go ahead. Yeah, it, it's an important ang- angle here because... It has to go back to it goes back to the foundation. I mean, the foundation of Israel, the foundation of Israel, and the foundation of Iraq.
0: Well, yeah, the foundation of Israel, Israel, the Balfour Declaration, nineteen seventeen, where the Brits decided that the Israelis, the, the World Zionist Federation, and the Zionists, who who are lobbying for this this state based on their religious delusions, uh, at least that's what they claimed uh, in, in Palestine. Um, they were lobbying for it, and the British decided, okay, we'll go with this because we can use the Israelis, hopefully, eventually, as a basically a policeman or a kind of little piece of definitely Western Westernized, as they thought, uh, or or a country with Western interests uh, in the Middle East, and surrounded by all of these Arab nations, and um, they obviously with that as the beginning. But that is the foundation of Israel. There was obviously a relationship from then on between Britain and then the U.S. and their interests in the Middle East, <clears throat> their you know, greedy interests in the Middle East, and the Israelis, and the Israelis have their own interests, which are largely delusional in the sense of being motivated and founded on uh, religious fantasy, as has been proven by if
5: you think of uh, his- Shlomo Sanz in his book. Uh, yeah. If you think of the strategy we've been talking about, that to go into a country and just take what you want, mm-hmm. you need to keep people divided, mm-hmm. distracted, down. Mm-hmm. Well, the creation of Israel, since the creation of Israel, that, that country has served that purpose absolutely for the region as a whole. It is a permanent uh, source of instability mm-hmm. through which
0: a lot of things can get done. Mm-hmm. And that's what they want instability instability is perfect they talk about you know the middle east and the middle east conflict the middle east problem there has been a conflict in the middle east directly as a result of israel's foundation on palestinian land um in 1948 and all of the events that led up to that uh, for about 30 years or more beforehand uh, that has all caused instability until today uh, in the middle east and that is perfect because uh, you want all of those countries to be under the threat of, you know, being destabilized or having a being generally unstable. So at any moment you can go in and incite the flames of, you know, uh, conflict or, you know, between the Israelis and, the, you know, having a permanent conflict there is very useful for uh, the purposes of control of the countries and the leaders that may rise up within those countries.
5: Yeah, this paper that Zoya quoted from calls explicitly for that. You know, the more inter-Arab conflict we can generate, the better. The better for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the
0: division of Iraq, which it, is it exactly is, what's happened. It, yeah, describes exactly what they you know, have incited civil war, manufactured civil war in Iraq, and tried to divide the country along religious lines, which is Sunni, Shia, and Kurds. And and they have deliberately corralled them and shepherded. Those different, uh, and they're not really different, you know, religions. Before, there there was a lot of intermarriage. Between she and Sonny, the differences weren't that great. They aren't that great, religiously speaking. And culturally speaking, in Iraq, there was uh, no great difference between them. They weren't enemies. No, of course And they intermarried. There was no problem with them intermarrying, and many of them did intermarry. But today, they have all been corralled into their little kind of uh, bantustans or whatever you want to call it in Iraq. Right along the lines of that document that you're talking about, that was written by an Israeli, as in, in the 1980s. Yep, and the same
5: language, practically the same things that this guy prescribed in that paper resurfaced later on in the other. We talked about rebuilding America's defenses by the neoconservatives, yeah. the neoconservatives who a lot of them were dual Israeli citizens. Um, now this is. Brought up a lot of discussion about whether or not the war was primarily for Israel or vice versa. Is the US using Israel? Is Israel using the US?
0: I think it's, absolutely. I think they're it's using a, each other.
5: They're using each other. It's a, it's a, just in a psychopathic world. It's just mm-hmm. a beautiful convergence of interests mm-hmm. in which a lot of stuff can get done. There's
0: nothing like a war and terror and there's to no, get stuff done and there's no honor among thieves. There's really no are thieves. Americans are serial thieves, and you know certainly they don't when their in- interests converge fine as they have done, you know, but all along there has been a lot of suspicion and distrust among you know between the two as well and the Israelis are extremely extremely paranoid, yeah, I mean by their own it's their own fault. you go and plant yourself in the and create a country for yourself. On Arab land, surrounded by other Arab countries, what do you expect? You know. Yeah. But you know, uh, so many Americans are all about supporting Israel and Americans for Israel, and um, those people are nuts. Certifiable. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what to say. They just. Basic common sense, not even asking for humanity here, I'm just talking about basic common sense, but humanity would be good as well, you know, in terms of seeing uh, seeing your fellow human beings, regardless of race, color, or creed, um, as your fellow human beings, and understanding who the common enemy is, and who the really non-humans are, because obviously much effort has gone into demonizing and dehumanizing other peoples in the eyes of Americans and in the West and stuff, particularly Arabs and Muslims in recent years. And it's very interesting that they've tried to dehumanize them to make them non-human so that they can more easily accept their brutalization when in fact the people who are putting that idea into the mind, into the minds of people in the West are themselves the real non-humans in the sense that they have a real difference genetically from Normal humanity, which is their complete lack of empathy for other human beings. They are the ones who cannot feel any empathy, or care, or consideration for their fellow human beings. They don't have any fellow human beings, but they try to project that into and onto normal human beings and get them to adopt that kind of creed and believe that uh, psychopathic ethos. We've got another call here. Hang on a second. Hi. Hello? Okay, what what's your name? Where are you calling from?
9: Uh this is Lynn from Canada. Hi Lynn. Hi.
0: Hi.
9: Great topic. Really great topic. And not surprised you had so much trouble getting it out there. Yeah. Um you just managed to circle back to something I, I had wanted to comment on early in the show, which is about preparing the American people. Um, I wonder if it isn't even a longer game than PNAC or twenty four. Because I remember when Survivor came out, and that was like the early '80s, and I remember hearing the description of the show and thinking, "I don't need to watch this. I know exactly what I'm going to see." And mm-hmm. it it just seems to have been sort of the beginning of inuring the you know the American mm-hmm. population to the idea of cheating and backstabbing and and all of that stuff and. And just seem to be the real beginning of, of a dehumanization of each other, even, and that if we can dehumanize each other, then it's certainly no problem to dehumanize some, you know, weird-looking person from halfway around the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's a very good point, and uh, it probably did start quite a long time ago, um, at you know when they first started to get people to. I mean, it does go way, way back. I mean. Sporadically, But the difference, I suppose, today is that it's kind of, it's, it's more widespread, and I suppose that's a function of I think
5: communications. Today, today it's taken hold.
0: It's take, maybe it's taken hold after so long. They tried and tried and tried, and it's like now. But, I mean, you go back to the days of the British Empire, for example. Mm-hmm. And there was all sorts of demonization of natives all around the world and, and um, amongst the, the British had their empire. They were seen as savages. I mean, geez, they called Irish people. You know, monkeys and gorillas, and characterize them in in cartoons, in cartoons as, as as monkeys. You know, so I mean, it didn't even, didn't even have to go f- too far away to, and maybe that's yeah. a function. I don't. I wonder if that's a function of of. I mean, I might be accused of being anti anti something here, but I wonder if that's a function of 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 a particular race of people. You know what I mean?
9: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, the Genetics white people has you know? always thought of themselves as as the superior and. I guess when you know you could you've got the most guns you can you can think that but it just yeah. it just struck me as um the beginning of a of in the long view something very coordinated
5: yeah there's there there's a documentary i can't remember the name of it but it looks back at um movies generally movies that have been made in hollywood mm-hmm. and the 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 anti arab anti middle eastern Stream uh-huh. that runs through them, right back to the beginning of cinema, really. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What is the name of it? Anyway, it it looks at the the sort of crass through to the, the more subtle. You're talking uh, about demonization
3: re- of bad Arabs.
0: Arabs.
9: Oh yeah, I mean even even yeah. if anybody remembers Back to the Future, what was the first movie? Yeah. Libyan terrorists.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. And You it's know, just and, stuck and,
9: in
5: and there. Just, there's no. Yeah, there's no reason for it to be there. Yeah, well,
9: this is the thing, I and mean, when when you start to notice that, you start looking at movies in a different way, and it's just like, you know, and and to take the opposite tack, I don't think I've seen a movie, and I don't watch that many anymore, that doesn't have some little pat on the head for Israel or some Jewish aspect yeah. of their culture. It's it's almost like it's mandated that yeah. you can't make a movie without something like that. So so both poles are being played in in the what well what passes for culture in the states and it's it's just really once you start looking for it it's just it's so obvious
0: but would you say would you say lynn that there has been a progression i mean if you back to i don't know the 50s and look at tv shows in the 50s oh are they yeah a bit more wholesome
9: oh, Abs i mean not that the 50s weren't didn't have their own issues but i mean something like 24 wouldn't have never even entered somebody's mind as a show pitch yeah. that i mean that wouldn't even that would that would be so far out of the, the 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 mentality of that era so you can see this this degradation this this decade by decade degradation as you spoke of of to where you know we can't even call it culture anymore
3: no. not really
0: <laughs> it's just it's 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 so it's, it's so poison mo- mhm
9: yeah. mm-hmm, exactly poison. anyway i just wanted to get that yeah. in there just the idea that 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 there may be a longer game yeah. Then uh twenty four.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah.
3: Okay. Okay. Great Thanks show. For call.
0: Thanks for your call. Bye. Bye
9: bye.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. Uh it does go back further. But I mean when we were talking about it earlier on, it was um I don't know, they just uh maybe nine eleven was the kind of end game. I mean it was a few years beforehand, but 9-11 nine eleven signalled the kind of end game and really ramped yeah. up. Because okay, I don't, final curtain. yeah, I don't remember. I don't think, in at least you know, in in American history or in, in Western history, there has ever been such a a widespread um, campaign to get people, ordinary people, as many as possible to to accept the idea of torture, torture of real human beings. Because this wasn't just I mean, you can do it in TV and stuff like that, but this was in real life. You know, this yeah. was like Gitmo and stuff. You know, yeah. Um, and just saying that these people, you know, they haven't been accused of any crime, they haven't done anything, but they are kind of people of interest for us. They, they are, we're concerned about them, so we're going to keep them in Gitmo, in shackles, and basically torture them on a regular basis by, you know, sleep deprivation and all sorts of, I mean, who knows what goes on there, but there's probably some horrible stuff going yeah. on there, and getting people to uh, accept that. It's almost like it takes reality TV to a to a kind of new level, and it's getting people to accept in real time the torture of other people. Who are just, you know, people living in Florida, it was happening. You know, what is it, ninety miles away? Yeah. Um. So yeah, it has been going on for for quite a while, though. I mean, and probably that's a function of I don't know. It's like it. It as as Lynn said, it's a it's a progressive, and it seems to have happened. Like I said, it does seem to be that in the, in the middle of last century, there was more of a wholesome kind of thing. At least still hanging in, hanging in there. But today, you can't find anything wholesome on TV. It's all, it's all tainted by some screwed up, you know, pathological, or literally psychopathic kind of trait or or, or um, yeah. you know, ideology in there. You know, whether it's just like screwing over your neighbor or, you know, being a <clears throat> you know, being uh, promiscuous and being cool or laughing at people and su- uh, suffering in some way or other. I mean, it's everywhere, you know, and that's entertainment these days. And that's all it is. Like Lynn said, there is no culture. It's just entertainment. And it's poisonous entertainment. Yeah. Because people are watching it and absorbing it and absorbing the messages that are being projected into their minds because you're watching a story there and you're, you're being taught, essentially. You're learning. Even all adults are doing it. They're learning a code of conduct and a way of thinking and acting by watching TV. And people need to be very careful about what they watch and what they allow into their kind of consciousness. You can watch stuff, but you've got to be able to call it out and say, you know, like regularly when we watch a, a movie here or a TV show and it's got something of that nature in it, we will be pretty pretty come down pretty hard on it afterwards and a yeah. post movie uh, analysis will really dissect it and call it for what it was and not watch it again if we if it's full of full of poisonous crap.
5: Even if
0: we're left feeling good
5: about the movie.
0: But we still have a niggling doubt Absolutely. about something. Yeah. The good guys and the bad guys and stuff, you know? I mean, you know as soon as you take it out and you really look at it I mean those born born movies, you know the born old born, born identity yeah. et, cetera, et cetera. I enjoyed those movies because they were well made and all that kind of stuff, in the action and the good guy wins out. They take away the idea of the good guy winning out, but at the same time, I'm not going to be sucked in by any kind of like um, glorification of super soldiers or you know good agents. Yeah, and and I suppose yeah,
5: yeah. Um, I think a point needs to be said. We. We've been here talking about one war. It's recent. It's still ongoing. Um, what, what, for me, what makes it a bigger event than I think people realize is that all the things that have happened since then,
3: mm-hmm. and I'm
5: including here the economic chaos that really took off in 2008, mm-hmm. it's still ongoing. They're all rooted in the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's this rampant corruption. I think Iraq, well, the bank Iraq
0: stands out because... The, ba- the banks finance the war, right? Oh, yeah. Ultimately, a bank, a central bank, will finance a country. And if a country goes to war, it's ultimately the central bank that finance and the bankers that finance the war, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> if people accepted the war or were cajoled or manipulated and whatever, for whatever reason, they were led to accept the brutality of the war and torture and all that kind of stuff, well, then the banks now are cashing in, right? Oh yeah, you've got to pay for it. <clears throat> you sanctioned us to do this. We need your money now to prop up the banks because we spent a lot of money on the war and we may not have enough kind of thing, or we've certainly bankrupted the or emptied the coffers in, in paying for the paying for the war. So now uh, we need y'all to to cough up because you apparently had a good time. You were all cheering. You yeah. were all shouting about going and getting those getting those dirty Arabs who attacked us on nine eleven and stuff. And we. Wanted to torture people to get information about them to keep you safe. Uh, we had to do that. We had to spend money on that. And now I don't have any money, so we want your want your cash. You got
5: to enjoy living in the land of freedom, and now we're going to sequester from you because, oops, we've run out of money. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're we're calling in our debts. Yeah, and it, it it's all it's it, it's a, it's a, it's tell you what it, it's it's an Pretty the overextension idea. of the U.S. government. I mean, think about it. Iraq is as far away from the U.S. geographically as you can get. They've, Almost, they they parked themselves there. The, the the amount of logistics, the amount of troops, um, the amount of money, of course, that went in there. It it is completely. It's a self-inflicting wound in that sense because this has sped up, if not caused the
0: complete collapse of the U.S. itself. Mm-hmm. Not just financially, but morally.
5: Yeah, in, on both counts.
0: And socially. And it's a tale as old as time. We, ha- Yeah, it's... um, But like you talk about what has happened as a result of 9-11. Well, the Iraq war was precipitated, or was facilitated, justified by 9-11. <clears throat> Many other things have been justified by 9-11. Uh, that does not directly uh, does not directly involve Iraqis. It directly involves Americans and people in Western Western civilization, uh, Western co- countries, as we have said. I don't like to use civilization because they're not very civil. But um, you know all of the freedoms and stuff that have been stripped away, and the Patriot Act, and the Indefinite Detention Act, and Obama's ability now to blow anybody up with a drone. Who he feels this, this is what you're getting. This is payback. This is your reward for allowing psychopaths to lie to you. Yeah, manipulate you into justifying inhuman uh, acts against other human beings, and the result is is that you get screwed. It's you know you thought it was just you know okay I can let it happen because it's just those people over there getting screwed. Nah, it's uh, you have to pay the paper as well, and people will. Yeah. Just this week, um,
5: just this week, there were Senate hearings on the space threat. It was brought up because of what happened in Russia last month—the
0: Russian meteorite. Kaboom! Hang on a second. What? Oh, this one. Yeah. Are you talking about this Russian meteorite? <laughs> That one before, but it goes on for quite a while. That well,
5: apparently it a... <coughs> got the attention of some senators. Mm-hmm. Well, thankfully, but uh, <laughs> the discussion they have was, was interesting. They hauled up the head of NASA, a general uh, James
0: Holden, I think. Mm. A and general he... at the head of NASA. I think he is. Yeah, way to militarize. A... Yeah. Well, see, he was certainly he was sitting next to a yeah.
5: four-star general as well. Anyway, he's there before Senator Lamar Smith, Republican from Texas, chairman of the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Actually, they were reporting on um, that NASA has been tasked with uh, being able to track by this year, I think, some 90% plus of all asteroids over one kilometer in diameter. And <clears throat> this was a kind of a, a report, a checkup. How are we going with that project? You know, uh, well, he said, he said some interesting things. He said, yeah, we have reached that target, which I don't believe for a second. But then the senator asked him some other questions because it was pointed out that the most damage can be done by objects as small as 100 meters across city destroying asteroids or common fragments. Mm -hmm. And so the senator asked him, well, what, what? how many of them are out there and what percentage have we got our eye on? And the, the head of NASA looks across at Obama's advisor Holdren, I think and it says to him
0: um, something like 10%. Mm-hmm. 10% we have our eye on 10% of the deadly space rocks that could wipe out life as we know it. And
5: then he's asked by the center
0: if hypothetically one of these objects was heading
5: for us right now. mm." what what can we do? Are we in a position to do about? It? And the guy basically said to him, "Um, no, the best thing Americans can do is pray.
0: The best thing Americans do is Americans only well oh, of course Americans. it was all about the space threat as yeah. far as the u s concerned. Americans can put their head between their legs and kiss their earth goodbye well uh, he is was that the, being thats the appropriate he, response, yeah, he was saying pray because he wanted
5: budget i yeah if if we're gonna do our job of protecting America from the space threat, we're gonna need more, astro, more 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 satellites up there watching the skies,
0: i.e. give me more money. More. And so the him saying pay in response to one of these coming towards the US is him saying give us more money and we people be, be able to do something about give it. Give
5: us more money. And of course the response
0: was well we can't because there's no budget.
5: Well, mm-hmm. yeah, there's no budget. You can't deal with this problem because... Why is the there no budget? economy
0: Because yeah. there's no money. Yeah, because it's been okay. wasted. Yeah. On wars. On wars. Wars that they of, this reminds me of the Roman Empire. And the the Athenian Empire. Democracy. Yeah. And
5: all that. It's like...
0: Are we in a time loop? It seems to be just some kind of a time loop. Do these people not read history? No. History's full of facts.
5: I don't like facts. Even recent history. I mean, when, when the British arrived in Baghdad in 1917, fall yeah. of the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. the, the the British general himself makes a speech. You no, know, we'll be greeted as liberators. Oh yeah, he it said was that. almost word for word said that back then as well. Yeah, yeah. And then years they're they're suppressing a,
0: an uprising.
5: Yep, they could have known it then. And even now, they make the same mistakes.
0: Well, the two things seem to go hand in hand. You know, uh, the the decay of society, fueled by wars led by psychopaths and by a polarized society and, and population, seems to coincide. I don't know which one came on first, but it you know which one which was, which was on first, but they seem to coincide with <coughs> historically speaking, seem to coincide with the. Uh, The increase in fireballs and uh, the celestial threat. Uh, It's just a marker. You look around you and you see that society is fatally or appears to be fatally and tolerably screwed up. Uh, Look to the skies. (laughs) Maybe the the thing to do, you know. On that note, I think that we have made up for our 13 minute um, dead air time at the beginning. Through no fault of our own.
5: Yeah, sorry about that. That's uh, Skype's
0: fault. That's Skype's fault. Uh, so, yeah, we just... This was just an exercise in trying to inform people on what the Iraq war was all about and some of the context in which it was waged. And it's just a warning to people to be very careful. I mean, it's, maybe it's a bit late. We should have been saying that or 15 years ago, but um, be very careful about what you allow yourself to be manipulated into believing and accepting because um, it's not just people over there who suffer as a result. Uh, You run the risk of potentially losing your own soul and you are the guardian of your own soul, so uh, you need to be on your guard in that respect. Um, so with those words of I don't know if the words written, With the those words, we will uh sign off for this week and just thank everyone for listening and thank our callers for calling in and let you know that we will hopefully be back next week at the same time. Uh-huh. we hope you can join us then. Overnight. Good night.